Good evening and welcome to the April 27th QPSC meeting. Uh, I'm Kinkini Banerjee and I will be chairing the meeting today as our QPSC chair is on his way back from a conference. So uh, welcome everyone again. And um, I will ask Madam Clerk to take roll. Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Bouquet is absent. Trustee Esteen. Here. And Trustee Jensen is also absent, so we do not have a quorum. Thank you. And I believe we have one person for public comment so far. Are there any more? I only have um, the one. And uh, if you'll bear with me one more. I would like All right. to, Thank but I you. don't know how. Yes. Uh, is that uh, Ms. Tenenbaum? Yes. Francesca Tenenbaum? All right. Yes. So uh, please go ahead. You have three minutes and our clerk will put the timer on. Okay, well, Welcome. thank you for the opportunity to speak with you tonight. I want to talk about um, the question that has come up about security at John George. I'm the Patients' Rights Advocate Director for Alameda County, San Mateo County, and Marin County. And I have 24 years of working with John George. When I heard that there was some consideration about having the deputies contracted to do security at John George, I felt a need to express concerns. Having done this for 24 years, I was working at John George at the time when the deputies were contracted to pro provide security in the past. There were some very serious problems that occurred during that time. And I actually spoke before the Board of Trustees back then and pointed out a number of things that influenced the decision to end the contract with the deputies at that time. I'd like to share with you a little bit about what we saw then. What we saw was deputies that, that are not clinically trained, they are not clinicians, and they were being given the ability to oversee the, oversee the environment and make independent decisions about when they thought there was a security risk. Their response to security risks was appropriate for law enforcement. And that was what their training was, but it was not appropriate for a clinical environment. And what we saw were a lot of fairly violent physical interventions. One of the things that the deputies would do would be to secure the scene, which meant pushing back the staff, pushing back all the rest of the clients, and physically taking over the unit. Over time, more and more, the deputies were pretty much running the units. The nurses didn't come out from behind the nursing station as much anymore. I observed interactions between deputies and, and clients that, that really violated the rights of the clients. At one point, I saw deputies putting people on the ground and kneeling on them, kneeling on their heads, doing things that would never be accepted by, cl by clinicians and that patients' rights advocates would have had the authority to intervene where we had no authority to intervene when it was the deputies acting. Some of the other things that uh, occurred were the deputies were recognizing clients or identifying their names and then independently running their names for warrants. And those clients then would find themselves arrested for um, 
for warrants as they walked out the door upon discharge. In spite of efforts to stop this practice, it continued because there was no control over it. Um, some of the other things that we were seeing was, was that clients reported feeling unsafe. They said they felt like they were in a correctional facility rather than a hospital for treatment. As a result, what we saw were clients less and less inclined to reach out for help for fear of being brought to John George. The reputation of the facility suffered in the community. Family members were begging ambulances not to bring their loved ones to John George. When they visited, they were extremely uncomfortable and reported to our staff at Mental Health Association that they were concerned that their loved ones were being held in correctional facilities. We had many clients who had had bad experiences with law enforcement. The fact that the deputies were on the units at all left them feeling traumatized and interfered with their ability to adequately participate in recovery and treatment. The deputies are not required to follow a client's multidisciplinary treatment plan, and they are not even aware of what clients' um, treatment plans are, and yet they were intervening and interfering in the clinical um, treatment of patients. One of the things I'd like to point out is that I am sensitive to the violent, to the violent um, interaction that happened with staff and that several staff were injured. And I've seen this occasionally over the years. But what I found is that when clinical staff really use their training and make every effort to de-escalate things before they become a full-blown episode. We see very few of those kinds of episodes and nothing, nothing prevents them from having a policy where they can call on law enforcement. Ms. Tenenbaum, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Uh, uh, our clerk uh, is having audio issues. Uh, the your time is up, it's uh, past okay. three. Yeah, and I wanted well, thank to- you. Yeah, Thank you thank so much. Yeah, thank you, Ms. Tannenbaum. And patient advocacy voice is really important. So uh, we really want to hear. Um, thank you for this feedback. And I know that at this point in time, when there's public comments, neither uh, management nor board can respond. But what I do want to assure you that this is a very high priority for us. And there are plans being put into place. Some of them have gone in and some of them are just, you know, it, it are um are in the works very soon and so the kind of patient excesses are definitely seared in our brains and so there is a lot of care being taken to make sure that the safety is maintained and all that's all i can say i can't say details about the staff but thank you for your feedback we really appreciate that thank you for you being a voice for our patients um if, um, are there any other public comments, uh, Ahmad or Prana? All right. So with that, we'll move to the agenda. I want to, since uh, we don't have a forum today, we'll uh, tweak the agenda a little bit. We're going to go first with our, uh, you know, first item, which is the um, uh, the discussion of the article, uh, which is item A. Uh, we will put item B as the last item for today's tonight's meeting. We will move from A after A, we'll have the uh, move to C, um, discussion with the medical staff. Uh, D, 
reports um, of the patient safety regulatory affairs, and then finally with the quality improvement project uh, report with the high utilizer team. So that's how we will go. So we'll start with the first item, which is the um, which was the article, um, cruel lesson of a single medical mistake, and um, just want to share a little bit of my reflections, and then I'll op open that up. And again, this is heartbreaking on so many fronts, reading this article and, <clears throat> and also such a triggering topic because often when something like this happens, there is a tendency, especially with this kind of criminal prosecution and conviction that it goes into an individual um, responsibility. And while um, that is um, the, the, the cost, the conversation about how like system failures happen is sometimes lost in that. And um, so as the author talks about a couple of things that really came to mind for me was that um, it's happening in the midst of COVID. Uh, there are compounding issues of staff shortages, burnout, desensitization, and that it, it, so as the author talks about that kind of um, struggle to kind of frame this as a systems issue um, rather than individual failures and then and to kind of tie this with the fact that preventable medical harm happens in so many ways and that's why we need the kind of system measures because diligent hardworking folks can have moments of distraction and things, and that can be a life and death situation. So it's both. So I'm going to open it up for those of you who you know work with this on a daily basis, and you know think about not just when it's a death, but all of the near misses and harms, and um, you know what comes up for you as you read this. Thank you. Yeah, this article tells a story. And I, I really appreciate that they repeat over and over, the author repeats over and over that the system must be considered as well as the climate that we're in COVID that people are working short staffed and long hours and uh, that there are many, many things that typically occur um, before you, I mean, a, a, an outcome like what happened in Tennessee where the patient died is often um, the most high profile of mistakes, but not the first. Sadly, this is usually like a cascade of effects. It's many mistakes over time and uh, a culture of teaching and learning where mistakes are reported regularly is actually the best, uh, the gold standard. And yet we don't have a nationwide standard for errors and for reporting errors. Um, and I think when we get to that place, we'll be in a better place in our medical system overall. Um, yeah, I appreciate here at AHS that we are embracing a culture of learning and errors and helping to bring our uh, nursing education department back to being fully staffed because I know that that's gonna help quite a bit. And going from dyad to triad is also helping quite a bit to open communication and increase transparency across uh, disciplines. Thank you, Trustee Esteem, that safety for folks to be actually be able to 
So with that, I'll, um, Dr. Tonabini. Yeah, thank you. I, um, I think you used the term uh, triggered and I, I found the right, you know, reading this article, it really felt like that uh, for me. I mean, even just if I think back through um, my own clinical career, I can easily point to you know certain days or mornings where I felt overwhelmed or I had some sort of you know near miss or even you know some medication errors myself that I've I've lived through and and I think the author wrote that you know she was um, writing about one of perhaps her attendings who said you have to never stop being terrified and I can't underscore enough what that is like to live in as a clinician in a state of constant terror. It, it really, because, and I know that so many uh, clinicians describe that and, and it's incredibly stressful and exhausting to live through that every day, even knowing that you're held by colleagues, you know, who will take a just culture approach like we have here, but knowing that if, if I make a mistake, um, that there might be somebody harmed is, is terrifying. Um, and, and that really brought that up in this article for me today. So thank you for, for sharing that. Thank you, Dr. Tonabene. Um, anyone else? Yeah, for me, it was, um, it, it was really thinking about how do we, uh, as, as the author said, to air is human came out in 1999, when I think they had predicted that there are about 45,000 to 99,000 preventable deaths. And the IOM Institute of Medicine report had at that time made recommendations that in the next five years, we should have the uh, rate. And then in 2016, the John Hopkins study came out, which said that it's about 250, a quarter of a million folks uh, dying. Now, there's been some question about the methodology they used. And there was some another article in the BMJ, which said it's 440,000. And because, you know, not all, um, um, you know, death certificates mention like this is human error, systems error, so unless it's reported, there's no way of knowing. And so there were uh, talks about that. So I know how infuriating sometimes it is for people when they use the plane crash, um, uh, you know, allegory to say, oh my gosh, like that is something that happens episodically. And this is if you're thinking about sepsis or infection, some of these are slowly building up and there are so many other things. And, and, it's, and, in, and it's both because so much of this again are systems and checklists and ways so how ehr how you know there are different ways i i just love there was it was such a learning experience when epic was happening sapphire was happening for us to learn how there were all these different levels of things about patient records and other things about how training has to happen for at pharmacy so it's like pharmacists and pharmacy technology who who's dispensing, what's happening, who's writing. So all of these little things compound the, the tiredness, the staff shortage and all of that. And so I think 
for us, I'm glad we have a small and mighty team that is doing that. But I think the onus is on all of us that could, if this is the you know numbers that, that are happening, like what do each one of us do without being, you know, as you said, like paralyzed by fear, which is just hard when you're yeah, treating it like in there. Um, any any other comments? All right. So moving along, our next um, so item, I'm going to invite um, um, our medical staff report. So um, anyone want to go first? How about Dr. Joshi, are you ready? I am ready. I just wanted oh. to pull up my report real quick. But <clears throat> in the meantime, I can get started. Um, and because I'm pulling it up, I will just go a little bit out of order because one of the things that I wanted to highlight in our strengths section was our nurses. So first of all, Nurses Week is coming up. We are proud of our nurse colleagues. We truly believe in working at a place that's interdisciplinary. Uh, we appreciate Ro who has come and really done great work already in her role. Nurses Week will be a great time to celebrate. In particular, I want to highlight that we are excited that the nurses will be starting NQRC, which will be a forum where we can review uh, similar to QRC, but for nurses. And I think that's important because it will allow for uh, our abilities to look at issues that happen um, from all spectrums, not just from the clinicians. So I want to thank everyone who is in support of doing that. And I appreciate that. Um, other things I wanted to highlight was another strength, um, Mr. Jackson's letter that had gone out to the entire system. I don't know if it was last week or the week before, emphasizing just culture. Again, going back to our nurses, the email that went out was um, in light of the findings of what had happened in Tennessee. And I feel like a message coming from our CEO is really important to show that as an institution, we care, we wanna maintain a culture of safety and try to not have fear overshadow um, anything that may happen, which would always get in the way of patient safety. Um, other things that we did, quality and patient safety, we were at the beta conference that happened last week. A few of the leaders were there as well. It was a conference that focused on communication and transparency and also what to do when rapid events happen and what our response should be. So on a personal level, I found this conference to be really interesting. And it was great to know all the resources that Beta has available to us of what to do when events happen. Again, really emphasizing just culture. Operations. Um, about two weeks, we met with Transfer Council with Huron facilitating. It was a good opportunity to know what our Transfer Council is doing pathways that had already been created um, because the people in the room were a diverse group of nurse leaders, transfer council leaders, and physician leaders representing, including San Leandro and Alameda Hospital. So it was a really good dialogue. We still have a lot of work to do, but the transfer council through the leadership of Ryan DeGive is aware of the things that we need to do. Huron is working very closely with him. So I'm glad that we were able to do that and look forward to more meetings like this. Operation-wise, our emergency department volumes have been steadily increasing. Now, that's good for us. We definitely want to be a entity that the community accesses. But of course, with rising rates of COVID in the community, even though the 
burden of disease doesn't seem to be as high. It's something that is still important for us to track of because it has to do with our staffing, of course. Other things in operations is our sterile processing workflow. This has switched over to Highland as of a few weeks ago. I know Mark Brown has been working very hard. I know that the final solution will be many months um, before that can be put into place. But so far, it appears that our process of sterilizing at Highland is working. Um, in the emergency department, we closely communicate with our surgeon colleagues. And as far as I understand, we haven't had any safety events and no issues in terms of getting our patients to the operating room and using sterile equipment on a timely basis. So I'm glad for what we are doing right now. Medication reconciliation, we've made some pretty significant gains at Alameda Hospital through our pharmacy colleagues and strong partnership with our nurses. We have biweekly meetings that are ongoing. Um, I reviewed strengths, uh, opportunities. So patient experience provided communication. This effort is being led with our patient experience group with Dr. Tona Benny. We're currently in the process of identifying people who will be in the cohort from both the ED, the AIM hospitalists and surgeons. So on a personal level, I'm really excited because I've identified my two ED colleagues who are excited to start this cohort. Um, our culture of safety reported that our has been working very hard. In the emergency department, we got our culture of safety results. We have seen what has been reported hospital-wide. So we have a lot of opportunities to dissect the results and implement some meaningful change. Um, echocardiography uh, continues to be a challenge because of staffing. We are working very closely with our cardiology colleagues. About two months ago, we had identified some gaps in communication that have significantly improved. So while staffing continues to be an issue, our communication has improved. In addition to some of the pain points that our hospitals particularly feel of the need of having to transfer patients who need procedures. So they're vocalizing their pain points. We're trying to understand what is at the heart of it and what can be resolved and solved in that. Um, again, going back to transfers, we have opportunities for our interfacility transfers within AHS, Alameda to Highland inpatient. Um, the Transfer Council will continue to work on this, and we've had a lot of meetings. So it's an opportunity that we need to address in a timely manner, and I think all the stakeholders are fully aware of this. Professional Standards Committee. Um, we're working with Dr. Williams to work on a committee that overlaps both med staffs. We are working right now to see if there's a way to get training for those physicians who want to be on this committee. The reason why the training is so important is because when we, the med staff, look at professionalism's issues, often this has impact for HR, legal, other types of domains that we as physicians are not experts on. And it can be quite uncomfortable to have to look, even if it's an inquiry or even more on a grand level, an investigation. It's really challenging to know that you're making decisions that are really impactful for someone's ability to work. So we're trying to find ways to get training so that we can build up the skill set for these physicians who would be engaged in these types of inquiries and investigations. Some key concerns. So with Alameda Hospital, we know that there are some concerns of, um, you know, the future 2020, 2030 seismic requirements. 
There has been um, letters of support sent from the med staff at Alameda Hospital for a district bill that would provide an extension to allow us to remain compliant despite the seismic requirements that would go into place in 2030. The med staff was glad to write this letter and I hope that we can continue to count on the support of everyone else as well to keep Alameda Hospital compliant. Um, continue to have issues with clinical equipment and consultants and access to subspecialists that is being worked upon, especially through the work group that Dr. Williams is leading. That concludes my report and I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Dr. Joshi. Um, and the training that you mentioned um, that, um, that the med staff did, that the physician staff, uh, is it for both the investigations, but also patient experience kind of those aspects too, is that? Um, this would be more for when there are concerns raised that need to be looked at by the med staff of fellow physicians. So whether there are uh, professionalism's concerns. So if it is a patient safety, that has the channels through first the departmental QP, um, um, QRCs, mm -hmm. and then uh, for Alameda Hospital, it would then go to the MEC. But there are issues that sometimes don't directly impact patient safety, but are more along professionalisms. And so what's the process by which to look at that? That's the kind of more gray zone challenge that we're hoping to develop our skill set. Thank you. That's that's helpful. So that some that doesn't escalate, but then how do you like appear and other reports along right. those chains? Thank you. Our questions, um Cassie Thank you, um, Dr. Joshi. You have your hands full with all that is happening there, but it's really good to hear that this is going. How do you, uh, I'll ask the same questions. How do you feel resourced in, in what you have to do next? I know with, uh, with um, transfer council, the subspecialty. I think that, you know, AHS has safety that that's always a challenge, but I will say that I feel supported. I feel, you know, Dr. Toner Benet especially is, uh, understands our concerns, is available to help us real time and even with longitudinal planning. Um, in fact, we were just talking earlier this week in just in terms of how do you truly problem solve these problems that continue to come up? And there are real communication challenges because of multi-facility and you may think you solve a problem, you may think you created the tip sheets on how to solve something, but if it doesn't get to that individual at midnight trying to solve that particular problem, that's the challenge. So I feel, um, I feel supported. I feel that people understand the problem. Everyone understands what's at stake and it's going to take time, but I feel that we have partners who are working with us on this. Thank you. Is there anything that you know, you haven't mentioned in the in the realm of your reports, but outside of that, that you'd like to bring up now that you um, have have the mic. No, I have um, said everything that I need to say. Thank you. Thank you. And James, did you want to say I thank thank you for that uh, letter that you signed? I know that you know this is something that we are considering. We are balancing. Um. um issues about uh, what did we have to, did you have anything that you wanted to share about um, um, to respond to Dr. Joshi? Oh, well, 
Thank you very much for the opportunity, Trustee Banerjee. I just, um, I am grateful for the acknowledgement of the letter regarding just culture. And certainly um, it was the right thing to do because that kind of a verdict could have a chilling effect on staff's willingness to acknowledge when they have made a mistake. And so I felt and the executive team that it was terribly important that we reaffirm our commitment to just culture and to um, allowing folks the latitude to acknowledge errors and you know that we're going to work to correct the problem and not try to punish the individual you know when it's not warranted. So, so there's that. And then I also was grateful for her comments regarding the sterile um, processing um, work that's going on at Alameda. You know, we have infrastructure issues there that are being dealt with, but um, Mark Brown, who is the CAO for Highland, but he has system responsibility for um, Central Sterile. Um, and I, I think he's done an outstanding job in creating with his um, colleagues a process by which we can get the equipment sterilized for Alameda Hospital. So it's gratifying to hear Dr. Joshi um, acknowledge that of her own volition because we believe it's working, but it's great to hear a clinician who is at the receiving end who feels that it's working. And so thank you for uh, your comments, Dr. Joshi. Thanks for the opportunity to respond. Thank you, Mr. Jackson. And also, um, I know, uh, Dr. Joshi, that we will be having Debbie Stebbins on, our, um, on one of our meetings to be talking about the seismic work as well. So we look forward to be discussing that as well. Um, um, Chair Banerjee, if I may, I apologize. One more thing. And about that, on that topic, um, the assembly actually did move um, that process forward. Um, but it was yesterday, I believe, either yesterday or today, but we got an email from Debbie Stebbins acknowledging that. And so we're gratified. Um, the It was changed from a seven-year extension request to a two-year extension request, but um, it is moving forward in the assembly. Um, it was unopposed. And so we are um, cautiously optimistic that we will um, have more time to do the necessary work to make sure that Alameda Hospital remains a viable asset to the community for the foreseeable future. Thank you. Well, thanks for the update. I did not know that it had passed um, assembly. So thank you for that. All right, I'll turn it over to um, Dr. Bingham. Did you say Dr. Williams? Yes, I do. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, good evening. Um, I'm going to echo a few points that Dr. Joshi brought up, and I'm very grateful that um, you know, both medical staffs sort of are in alignment uh, around a number of of concerns and accomplishments. Um, and I wanted to add a few comments regarding the Professionalism Standards Committee that Dr. Joshi has mentioned. It's sort of a joint effort that we are uh, trying to implement. Uh, this is going to be a brand new committee that has never existed before at HS. And the goal is to standardize um, and create um, sort of more robust, clear process around how we approach issues associated with um, professionalism uh, behavior of providers. Um, and that's why we wanna build this new structure. Um, and like Dr. Joshi mentioned, we just feel like we really want to set up the members of this committee for success and get them properly trained to be able to um, deal with these sensitive topics. In addition, we including um, uh, members of the provider well-being committee into this training, since there is a lot of overlap between the issues of professionalism and impaired 
physician or impaired provider, and that's what the provider well-being committee is um, uh, dealing with. So we sort of want to have a joint train effort in terms of training for both committees. And currently, we look at trying to identify um, the source of funding for that training as we have partnered and developed um, a curriculum with um, UCSD to sort of provide um, necessary training to our providers. Um, so in terms of my report for the AHS medical staff, um, I will probably start with the key concerns because it reflects some of the other aspects of my report as well. Um, uh, one of the uh, concerns uh, as well as sort of an area of exploration is the service line implementation within HS. Um, we are excited and grateful that we have our first service line um, up and running the cardiovascular service line. We have, uh, we have recently learned about the strategy around the service line and um, this model seems to be um, very it seems to be effective um, for these services. And we're looking forward to learning more about how this uh, model is going to fit it and work within AHS. And there's been a lot of discussion about uh, what well, can we implement that model in other services and specialties. And I think that's something that we're looking forward to learn more about and understand. However, it, it's, it's very, exciting to know that we have started with this approach and um, identifying potentially next steps and next specialties will be um, wonderful. Um, one of the um, concerns that um, MEC had last time were questions around recruitment challenges. I think we're still struggling with uh, recruiting providers. Um, more than inpatient, outpatient side. Um, it's um, sometimes can be somewhat confusing to understand what resources we have in terms of our recruitment support. Um, and um, of course, different medical groups can also approach it differently. So um, it will be helpful to have a better understanding of what um, what resources we can use, what times, what uh, and uh, how can division chiefs and department leaders sort of take advantage of that and uh, really also trying to understand why some of our positions don't seem to create a lot of interest and why are we not getting kind of sort of what are the root causes of that. So we, we had a discussion about this. Um, another concern um, uh, was culture of safety results. I think physicians are still uh, learning about uh, the results for specific position divisions and departments. And um, even though we were able to engage physicians somewhat better during this round, I think there is definitely an opportunity to engage physicians even more. And despite a lot of efforts from our quality department, which we're really appreciative of to customize the survey and really sort of turn it into something that can be more intuitive to our physicians and hope to sort of create more participation interest around it, um, I think our numbers can still be better. So again, the, I guess the next steps will be for us to think through it again and see what, what is that we're missing and why we're not quite getting the physician engagement that we were hoping for. Um, so that 
that summarizes the key concerns. And um, I also wanted to express appreciation to our nursing leadership for the development of the nursing quality review committee that's been an ask for a while and um, you know, role often really jumped in and took care of it in a very timely and effective manner. So um, we interested to learn more about the, the specifics of the process, but it's very exciting that this initiative has been started and implemented. Um, and that concludes my report. Thank you, Ms. Williams. Trustee Estienne, do you have any questions? Anyone? Um, and I presume um, that uh, you know, HR, Lorna, there have been conversations about like some of the, uh, you know, issues that uh, with recruitment and the challenges that they are having about what um, folks could be doing. So that was one question I had. And the other question, and maybe this will be discussed in the, at the, um, when we, when we do the culture of safety facilitation is that uh, will the neutral facilitators also be trained and will HR be doing that or should we punt that for a later time um, um, uh, in the agenda? Uh, Dr. Donovan, uh, uh, if you want to just say, I can, I can hold off on that second question, but the recruitment I could. Uh, yeah. Yeah, for the for the second question, I think because Darshan will be giving us a whole presentation, so I think that would be um, great to for her to discuss in that. All right. Um, Lona, did did you have uh, you, your line might be muted? I wanted to ask like the recruitment issues that that um, with the physicians we saw that the. Um, engagement, uh, you know, I think it was 38% uh, of physicians that, that responded. So the response that is, but also the recruitment, other things that besides that, that, that our own physician leaders and peers could be doing to be, to be addressing this kind of lack of interest. Sure. So what I can, can you hear me? Okay. Yes. Um, what I will say is that I have met with Dr. Tornabene and um, Dr. Achilles Warren about the issues that persist with our physicians and our physicians' engagement and recruitment. And we have put together a proposal that um, was already presented to ELT, um, uh, for members of ELT, I should say. It was presented to James, Mark, and to Kim. And then I met with Tornabene and Dr. Achilles Warren, Achilles Warren, excuse me, and um, we do have lots of ideas. Um, some of them are standing up another physician-centered recruiter and sourcer and marketing budget and um, taking away, we do a lot of contingent searches with outside agencies and taking that book of money that would be used for outside um, sourcing and putting it in-house. Also, we have ideas about marketing and branding that we think are very important and um, we need to highlight. Um, so yes, we are definitely working on this. Um, it's kind of prime time right now. We just presented to Dr. Achilles Warren on Monday. So we had a little delay due to vacations and things of that nature, but um, she seemed very um, supportive. And so I'll be circling back with ELT about next steps to make that happen. Thank you, Ms. Jones. Wonderful. Um, good to know all of these things are moving. and. Um, Dr. Williams, same thing. How supported resource do you feel in some of the key concerns that you raised? 
I think we feel pretty supported and, um, you know, it's been, um, it's been a good experience being able to communicate with our leadership um, and our leadership being very responsive and proactive whenever we uh, bring up a concern. So we're very appreciative of that support. Thank you. Dr. Absali. I lost Dr. Usali on the screen. I do. I am I missing him? Is he? Is he aligned on mute, Dr. Usali? I don't see you. Either. He might have dropped off. I can. I can try to give um, his report in the meantime. Oh, thank you. Dr. While we wait to see where he went, um, because he was on earlier. Um, I know that I spoke with um, Cleve, the ED nurse manager today. They're going to be looking a little bit more closely at the waiting room. Um, and I see Dr. Vazali is here and he unmuted himself, so. Welcome Dr. Vazali. We lost you for a minute, but glad you're back. Apologies, my no system worries. restarted. Um, if you're ready. I am ready. Good evening, all. Uh, apologies for that again. Uh, I will go straight to my report, uh, going to the key point number one. Uh, thankful for the new cardiology service that we had uh, begin over a month ago. Uh, very much needed. A formal call system for our cardiology colleagues uh, is critical for the hospital. Uh, there still continues to be some specialties that are of concern, uh, namely GI. Uh, and ENT, but I am hopeful that we will uh, work through those as well and, and, um, and find a solution. Uh, key point number two is relating to the EMTALA uh, CMS uh, uh, inquiry uh, that was finalized. Uh, a lot of great work went into this from administrative uh, as well as clinical leadership. Um, there were some areas uh, highlighted that, uh, as well as opportunities uh, for the ED to work on. Um, however, there's uh, some other issues that are underlying that I think uh, tend to be a theme across all uh, RCAs and uh, at times uh, the Joint Commission sightings, uh, which relate to uh, specific items I wanted to highlight, namely staffing uh, shortages, uh, including nursing and clerks uh, in the ED and the inpatient. Uh, Staff education and a lack of uh, a cohesive approach. I know that in the past year we've had at least two uh, educators who have been hired and who have not remained on the job for very long at all. And currently we are still lacking an educator. Uh, leadership gaps and, and turnover in leadership uh, relates to the last point there, which is a, last of, uh, a lack of a consistent message and culture. It's hard to get a grasp on, on that. Uh, message of culture when uh, we don't have consistent leadership. Um, and so uh, my hope is that we can work towards stabilizing staffing uh, and uh, also uh, stabilizing our, our, our leadership. Uh, the current leadership at San Leandro is amazing to work with. Glorinda and Mario, uh, I work with uh, very regularly and they're, they're awesome. 
but the, uh, uh, the unit uh, leadership, such as the ED uh, and inpatient, uh, still needs uh, some help. The ED just got a um, ED manager after a long uh, vacancy, um, and it and it led to some some lapses uh, that I felt personally. And I'm hoping that with the new manager now, we can get back on track and, and uh, get back to work. Uh, with that being said, uh, I'll take us to key point number three, which is the arrival um, registration renovation project that has been on the agenda for quite some time. Uh, there's been some uh, remarkable uh, data from that for the, for the first month, and we actually just uh, crossed the uh, April 21st um, uh, date of uh, second month's data. I'm happy to report that for the second month running, the data has held uh, steady. The only point where it fell a little bit was arrival to EKG, went up by about two minutes uh, on average, uh, but we also had no working EKG uh, machine uh, for a couple of days and had to borrow one. So that inevitably led to some delays as well. But the data has held. Uh, I'm going to continue to track this data uh, month on end. Uh, we will be continuing to fine tune and adjust the process as we, uh, as we move ahead. We actually had our meeting, uh, our work group meeting today, uh, and there is uh, uh, continues to be good engagement and feedback on, on how to fine tune that process. Uh, and I'm hoping we can, um, we can get even better results in, in the months uh, coming. Um, Key point number four uh, is the uh, radiology. I know our CT machine has been under construction for a long time. Uh, once that construction is complete, I'm hoping we can return MRI service to San Leandro, which has basically been at zero uh, this whole time. Some of the services uh, that we don't have on site, we have to transfer patients out for uh, just to get the testing. From a patient perspective, it's not the ideal situation to have to uh, transport via ambulance to get a, get a get a study done somewhere else and then come back. Uh, that definitely does not add to patient satisfaction. From the staffing side, there's a lot of background work that needs to go into discharging a patient and then readmitting them into a unit uh, just to get uh, a workup done. Um, so I'm hoping we can continue to focus on this as part of the leadership committee and, and, and fine tune that process as well. Um, I'll skip key point five and go to key point number six, uh, the EDRN staffing, uh, and I'll loop, loop that into key point number three up above, uh, which uh, will include the, the clerks. Um, so I think in order for uh, leadership in the units to have uh, satisfaction in the work that they do and support in the work that they do, they need to have proper staffing. Um, and uh, financial support from administration in order to have that staffing. Uh, I know that uh, our leaders at San Leandro have put in some uh, requests for uh, additional FTEs for uh, nursing staff in the ED, especially a triage nurse overnight, as well as a clerk in the ED and inpatient units overnight. Uh, I would urge uh, support for those roles and approval of those funds so uh, we can get those staff. Uh, I, I honestly don't think uh, it makes any sense for the ED at San Leandro not to have an over, overnight clerk and uh, have expectations of the charge nurses uh, to fill that role, uh, whereas um, 
any other ED similar size or smaller uh, functions differently and uh, has a clerk on site. Um, with that, I will pause. I'm sure there might be questions relating to the metrics I've shared. I'm happy to answer any of those uh, if you have any. Thank you, Dr. Sorry. Uh, Trustee Esteem, do you have any? Yeah. How much, uh, how many days was care interrupted because of the EKG that went out? Uh, three days. Um, the first day, I, I would say, was probably the worst because we couldn't get an EKG machine down into the ED. Mm. Um, and then we had to share one with the ICU. But the EKG machines in the ED are dated. So are you still borrowing one right now? No, we, we are. Uh, one of our machines is back to functional uh, for the time being. Uh, but I wouldn't hold my breath. Is this the first time an EKG machine went out? This is the first time we have two, and you know, intermittently one or the other went out. This is the first time when we have both out of commission. Hey, Dr. Abzali, um, has there been a uh, a request for to buy a new one? Um, I'm not sure if Mario's on the call. I think there may have been. Uh, yes. Let me let me check with him tomorrow. We should be able to afford a new one. <clears throat> okay, so let me just double check with. Thanks, thanks for bringing it up. Of course. Yeah, uh, just a quick question. Since they were both out at the same time, does it seem like we need more than one? Yeah, so I, I, would, I would say both of those probably need to be renewed because intermittently both have had issues that are, that, that uh, basically show their age. Mm -hmm. I'll communicate that with Mario as well. And um, I mean, the process of having to discharge and then we um, get somebody reinstated them in the unit just seems such a cumbersome process again over there. But um, I wanted to talk about the stats, and this is just really there for the trend holding and uh, arrival to triage for March. These are really good numbers, and like this. Gratitude to um, the entire team for doing um, such, you know, um, to bring this, to bring these numbers and to have to hold the trend um, is is really really good. I hope the GI specialty and others that you have been mentioning for now over for a couple of years now um, get resolved. I know those are moving forward. Um, and something that I wanted to like not necessarily for any of you, um, Dr. Joshi, Williams of Sali to answer right now, but as you have the space to talk about like the immediate things that are happening in some of the midterm, like the service line and other things, we also as a system is working on uh, finalizing a strategic plan, which will be our plan for the next five years. And I hope that um, you all have a chance to kind of uh, look at some of this and see what, what whatever um, info is available and that that is being shared at the 
med director level and others so that you have ownership of that. It will be coming to the board in May. Um, but familiarize, have your input, have your say. Um, the process I did have you know, surveys out and got a lot of Huron did a pretty extensive process to get input, but I do think that as they as they as the plan has been tweaked and refined and built with input over all these months of stakeholder input, be sure that from your vantage as leaders in your in your institutions that you have a chance to give your say as well. Any other questions or input on the medical report? All right, thank you so much. And again, huge gratitude to your teams and the nurses for uh, as well. Thank you. Okay, moving on. Uh, let's do our next is, um, uh, I'll turn it over to Anna and Darshan. Good evening. I am going to share the True North metric report and then we are going to move right into um, the culture of safety report and Darshan Graywell is going to present that. But let me share my screen and I'll only take a minute here. Um, wanted to show that for February, um, we did meet um, in four out of the 10 metrics. Um, and this is exciting news because in February, if you recall, is when we started to see the um, uh, COVID cases decrease. So it looks like um, some of the action plans that uh, the team's been working on has been working. And um, we're really working on sustainability. So hopefully when I come back next month, I can show just as good a report. Um, but anyway, just wanted to show that. And I know Darshan's going to be sharing culture of safety report, and that's going to take um, the rest of the time. So Darshan Graywall is our uh, Director of Patient Safety. Um, take it away, Darshan. Thank you, thank you. Good evening, everyone. I'm gonna go ahead and share my screen. Okay, great. And I always look to my, my friend James to make sure that he sees my screen. <laughs> and he gives me a thumbs up, thank you so much. Well, um, I am really honored to share our culture of safety survey results with um, the board members. And um, I do wanna express that uh, AHS had an all time high response rate of 74%. And when you look at that statistically for any type of uh, uh, engagement type of survey or uh, safety attitude kind of a questionnaire that is a very high response rate. So we almost had 3,600 people that had responded. So um, again, that's the highest for AHS. Um, so these are the nine culture domains that are part of the survey. Um, all of these domains um, have, uh, this is a composite score that it's reflective of each domain. Each composite consists of about five to seven questions, and then the composite score is averaged here as a positive result. And then our results are then benchmarked against national results, and currently Safe and Reliable administers this survey to almost 20% of the healthcare systems across the nation. 
And now this is comprised of all different types of healthcare systems, whether it be magnet hospitals, integrated healthcare models, county hospitals. So it is a, a cross section of all types of healthcare systems. Of these nine culture domains, this is percent positive. And this, this notation next to the percent positive is comparing it from last year's results. If it's green with an upward arrow, that means we went up in that domain. If it's red with a downward arrow, our, our results actually went down. Now, there are a lot of opportunities for AHS, but with all of these results, we are able to go, go forward or go upward from here because the, the first part of having a survey is knowing where you stand and where you need to focus on. Last year, our lowest scoring areas were teamwork and safety climate. And again, those, even though they went up slightly, are still our lowest performing air domains. Ironically, teamwork and safety climate are the two most influential doma domains to drive a culture of safety. So last year, um, the executive leadership team felt that that was the area that we needed to have a uh, concentrated focus uh, and each work setting was required to address those two domains as part of their action plans. Um, so I'm not going to go down into really drill down, but each of the domains do impact uh, frontline staff. The improvement readiness and local leadership is based on the relationship between the frontline staff and their immediate supervisor and how that communication and support is provided. Again, 50% positive, so we have a lot of opportunity there and how our leaders and um, work with our frontline staff. Burnout climate and personal burnout are almost exactly the same set of questions. Uh, personal burnout is how I interpret my personal resilience and burnout and how you actually, burnout climate is my perception about the people around me. Typically, personal burnout also always ranks higher in the percentage and how you view other people is lower. And then emotional thriving and recovery is based on the ability for people to bounce back, especially when they are faced with a lot of challenges in the work setting. How resilient are they? And are they emotionally supported to come back the next day and perform? And then we've talked about teamwork and safety climate. And then work-life balance is actually pretty good when you look at it um, overall, uh, especially since the pandemic. Uh, this is very positive, um, saying that 65% of the people feel that they are a, they have good work-life balance. So that's actually a fairly good result. This year is the first year that Alameda Health Systems has um, opted in to do the engagement part of the survey. It used to be done separately um, under the HR umbrella but we actually wanted to incorporate it into our survey. Um, there are no comparisons because this is the first year. The area that's most concerning on this one is in advancement. So it's, it's at 16%, but nationally advancement is always also an area that people struggle with. So within our departments, people um, 
are looking for opportunities to advance, but they don't have any intentions of leaving because 82% positive um, means that the majority of our people intend on staying at AHS. The next area, which I'm going to share with you, is the correlation between teamwork and safety climate. Like I had mentioned, those are the two most influential to drive a culture of safety. This is where the eight uh, facilities landed in those two domains. So we have uh, eight different facilities that were surveyed, and we have a lot of opportunity to get out of this red area and work towards the green. Um, another, another very neat feature that this year's survey had allowed us is we are able to look back year to year to see how we change. And again, we haven't changed a whole lot if we go all the way back to 2018 to now. So we, although even in the red zone, we're more spread out, but we're, we've consistently been in the red area. So there's opportunity for teamwork and safety climate. And um, based on what our executive leadership team and perhaps the board recommends today, we will, we will try to decide what our key drivers will be for our um, collective work for this, for this year. Question, can I ask a question? Yeah, uh, absolutely, so absolutely. Do, those circles uh, represent facility, so the biggest, uh, so each of the, like the hospital and the others. Yes. Uh, so each of these circles is a facility? Yes, each of the circles are a facility, and the larger the circle, the larger the, the denominator. So the, probably one of the larger ones is going to be Highland Hospital, and then the second one will be our system-wide services. So any um, department that has system-wide function. Thank you. The next one is actually the same correlation, but it actually talks about different roles within our organization. So that's why there's a lot more dots because it's all the different positions uh, that had taken the survey. Um, what we found is that it also pulls the lowest performing roles, and that will help us as leaders to where we need to focus our energy. So the highest, um, the highest uh, opportunity role is nurses. And that's, that's, um, that's a large workforce. And it's the, the role that actually performed the lowest as far as teamwork and safety climate. So that is concerning for an organization because they have um, direct patient contact. So we wanna make sure that we are able to address some of the concerns that are, are concerning to them. Uh, and then it just lists the, the five lowest positions in the safety climate and the teamwork domains, and they're listed here from nurses, clinical support, IS, technologists, and mental health workers. But again, it helps us strategize as leaders where we need to focus. Now, the next two domains are the second two sections that have, again, the greatest impact towards our culture of safety, and that's why there's a correlation. Improvement readiness and local leadership are two domains that actually um, that local supervisor or leader has the most impact on the results of that. How much feedback is your local leader giving you? Are they preparing you um, with information that you can successfully do your job? 
Um, are they uh, taking your uh, feedback and fixing things within the work setting? So this is a direct correlation to the leaders of those work settings. Again, we did, a, we did better than the safety climate and teamwork. So we're, we're transitioning towards a, a, a better area. But then again, it pulls. I, I, I'm not going to stress a lot on, on these five facilities because there were only eight facilities total. So if obviously it's going to pick the top five of eight. So I don't think it's irrelevant to say that these are the top five locations that need opportunities, but we're all sort of clustered in there. Ironically, if we look um, in 2018, we were a little closer. The good thing is now it's a little bit more spread out and there are some facilities that are actually moving towards the area that we want. Again, this takes that same correlation and it actually looks at the roles, different roles that have um, good leaders and, uh, and they have a lot of communication with their leaders so they know what to expect in their work setting. Um, areas that we have strengths are project managers and project coordinators, but areas that feel that they don't have good support from their leaders are clinical social workers, nurses, dietitians, technologists, and advanced practice nurses. So those are areas that we can look at that that communication be improved from their local leader. Now the next, um, the next one is a lot of data, but we're not comparing to AHS. What, what it's done is it's taken the 20% um, of the a national benchmark and looked at how we at AHS ranked with the national um, of our top cultural strengths, our cultural opportunities, our engagement strengths, and our engagement opportunities. So some of these are negatively stated questions, but th this is a positive percentile. So in our culture, we we are um, at, our strengths are. Um, it says in the past work week, I ate a poorly balanced diet, but that's a positive. So 59% of the people at AHS ate a balanced diet is what it's saying because it's a positive. It's a strength, actually, the way it was it's worded negatively, intentionally to make it a more, a more credible survey. So that's good that we we recognize this. We're giving people, we're giving our staff relief staff coming on the units, they're, they're getting their breaks, they're you know, um, being able to nourish themselves. 53% uh, positive that they were not frustrated with technology. So that's good. They have the tools um, to do their job. And then 51% uh, said that they uh, actually arrived home on time. They're not working late, but the other half of the people may, may be working later or over time. So again, those are our strengths as nationally compared. Where we have opportunities is in that emotional thriving and recovery uh, domains. It says, I always recover quickly after difficulties. I always regain a positive outlook despite what happens. And I would feel safe being treated here as a patient. When you look at the cultural domains, all three of those questions were pulled from emotional recovery and, and um, emotional recovery. So the ability to recover based on what's happening day to day within our work settings. When we talk engagement, our highest strength was 
was with respect to advancement in this organization, I am satisfied with my total benefit package. So again, I know our HR leaders are working diligently to put a lot of programs in place, including educational funding, um, uh, readjusting our salaries. So every week, Lorna uh, is really bombarded with questions and has now even opened a forum that leaders can come and ask our HR related questions. So I'm really happy that 61% positive that the benefit package is satisfactory to a lot of our employees. That's, that's very, very positive. Um, with respect to advancement in this organization, I have opportunities to be promoted. Even though advancement was low, but people do not want to leave, they're still looking for opportunities. So that's very positive. And then opportunities to advance through training. So again, a lot of educational funding is being put forth. So again, that was positive. Where we have opportunities where we ranked very low nationally is... Um, with respect to participation in decision-making. So uh, that was a key area. With respect to growth opportunities within my work setting, and then um, with respect to participation in decision-making uh, with problems within my work setting. So again, those are, those are from other domains. Again, this is national comparison. I try not to put a lot of emphasis when I meet with frontline staff because sometimes it's difficult for people to relate to what's happening nationally versus what's happening in, in our, our work setting. The last area that I want to just share is this is the this is the report card basically. And these are key drivers of our culture and, and engagement that are drivers that are recommended by the, the people that create the survey that are actionable areas that we can focus on as an organization. Now, I had mentioned when I on that grid that had all the summary of the domains, teamwork and safety climate are the ones that we scored the lowest on. And those are probably areas that we want to reflect on again as our focus areas this year. When we look at those domains, pulled out on these key drivers, the lowest scoring um, teamwork was communication breakdowns are common in this work setting. Only 32% were positive, and this is AHS wide. Um, so this is a key area that we want to work on in our organization. It did not change as far as going up or down from last year. So again, there's a lot of opportunity for us. Second one in the teamwork, dealing with difficult colleagues is consistently part of my job. It went down by 1%, but it is only 33% positive and 44% negative. Now, statistically, what they say, wherever the majority is, like this is 44% negative, that easily can influence the neutral people. So you have to look at it that the majority are feeling that they're it are difficult colleagues within their work setting that are hard to communicate with because the majority will override some of the neutral people. So that is definitely an area of focus. When we look at safety climate, the lowest scoring one is I would feel safe being treated here as a patient. Well, that's actually, we did pretty good, 47% positive. Now you have to consider 28% neutral because when I do the debriefings, many of the frontline staff say, 
I don't have a problem being treated here at AHS, but I'm insured under my spouse. And maybe I've been a Kaiser member for 25 years and I didn't want to switch over. Or I don't live centrally to AHS. So I seek my care outside and I use the PPO plan and, and I'm still insured under AHS. So this one, because we, we almost half of our employees are, are positive about that and almost 28, 30% are neutral, it's an area that I'm not really worried about because only 25% said that I would, you know, as a safety climate, I would feel safe being treated, but they re responded in a negative way. When I look at safety climate, the culture makes it easy to learn from the errors of others. Again, 51% feel that when there's an error, there's transparency and my leader is able to fix it. So it's not as, as worrisome because that's the majority with 27% being neutral, we can easily influence those people. So again, safety climate is not as crucial as I see in the teamwork domain. Now, the other lowest performing one is under the burnout climate. But ironically, when you look at this statistically, even though burnout, it says people in this work setting are burnt out from their work. It did not change from last year's score. It remained exactly the same. It's 54% negative. And as I mentioned, they would influence the, neg the neutral people. So that's three quarters of the people. But ironically, when you look at work-life balance, that's just the opposite. So again, when I'm doing debriefings and when I, when I um, train people to do debriefings, we need to understand this a little bit more because when you have work-life balance and it says 75% of our staff, um, the question is negatively stated, worked through a day or a shift without a break, it's actually saying 75% of our people don't. They get the breaks, they leave on time, they, they have the balance that they need while they're here, and then they can enjoy their personal time. What is it that's driving this number? Because sometimes it's a variety of things. Sometimes it could mean um, it, maybe during COVID, yes, I was really struggling. Or we have a lot of travelers, so I'm, I'm actually always mentoring people. So this, we need to really drill down and understand why the staff completed this because there's more to the story than just the poker chip, okay? Um, and then again, all of these are gonna be our key drivers that we will be sharing with frontline staff and actually gleaming some more insight to understand how we can shift the culture uh, towards a culture of safety. Um, these two, like I had mentioned, were are derived from the leader and actually AHS-wide, they're actually ranked pretty high. This uh, local leader regularly makes time to provide positive, positive feedback to me. It went up by 2%. It's 58% positive. The neutral is 20. So the majority of the people feel that their local leader does provide positive feedback. And then the learning environment effectively fixes defects. Again, um, we're on a journey of transparency, promoting uh, a culture of reporting so that it actually is reflective in these results that when we do learn of defects, we are fixing those defects. I'm going to pause here and um, 
I want to take questions because I know that that's a lot of information and I did a very, very high level summary. Um, is there any questions? I know that Dr. Um, Trustee Banerjee, you had mentioned something about the debriefing and uh, maybe you could pose that question uh, again. Sure, yeah, thank you. This is so helpful and it's so good to be able to see that, but also, you know, where our concerns are, uh, the teamwork is, is concerning, uh, but also to understand with the safety climate that that was kind of, you know, concerning to me until I saw this, uh, that there is, um, you know, that, that uh, it makes it possible to learn from the errors of other improvement readiness is good. So even in the midst of COVID to see that so many of the numbers, even if there's a 2%, 3%, 1% in positive uh, shift, that is a good thing that, that has happened and yes, opportunities. So um, in the yeah. previous slide where you, the previous slide where there was, um, I'll just um, can, you, can you scroll down a little bit? Sure, sure. After this one, um, where it said like the sec, uh, maybe the next one, let me see. If, uh, yeah, the cultural opportunities. So when I say, when I saw the percentile a second, because we are doing it flipped, I thought like 98% feel like I don't receive, uh, you know, I, I, that they don't recover quickly after difficulties. Or so is that, is that how I should be reading that? Yes, that's correct. And, um, and, and, you know, I do want to share, um, you know, I know that our wellness leader, uh, Sophia Newton, does a lot of wellness um, sessions and, and uh, you know, and even uh, Dr. William had also spoken about physician wellness. I know there's an opportunity here in our organization and there is a program that Beta highly promotes, which is called Care for the Caregiver. And it also um, is a pretty expansive program where you provide a safe, a safe place, a safe zone with um, uh, trained people that can help you through difficult, difficult situations, or even if you just need to uh, decompensate, you know, and, and come to a safe place. So we have looked at that program. And I really like to dust that uh, work that we've done, Dr. Tornabeni and I, we actually spearheaded a lot of that work, and it, we moved it quite far uh, towards implementation. And I'd really uh, like to bring that back and uh, look at how we can implement that. But those are the kinds of programs that we need when people are burnt out and they are faced with challenges in their workday every day, day in, day out. They need a safe place to go and to be able to just vent and, and, and feel like um, they're emotionally recharged. And so that's what it's saying. You know, we do, we do have a very unique patient population. And um, in, in many of our settings, you know, staff are, uh, you know, working incredible, incredible, you know, um, feats every day. And so I, I know that there's an opportunity there and there are programs that we could, we can implement that would, that would help us help our staff recover. Thank you. And like you said, you've been in this, you know, with the system and you've seen it from the safety and the quality 
aspect of it as well as now the engagement and the and the culture aspect of it and uh, we heard um, at the hr committee meeting last week um, about the wellness initiatives and how like it really needs to be kind of tied into things because sometimes when the teamwork or the team culture is toxic um a yoga session and things might not alleviate it fully but it's like this and this and this it's no one one thing but it has to be tied with all of that to be able to center the kind of wellness um in a in a way so yeah i did have a question and then uh, trustee esteen uh, let me jump to you first do you have questions yeah, I did have a question, uh, especially as it relates to burnout. And, and I think there was a statistic that was up there that said, I know that my supervisor is going to provide feedback to me, uh, which I think is interesting as we're talking about a safe place that people can go. Um, I don't remember the page that was on. This one um, mm -hmm. uh, regularly makes positive time to provide positive feedback. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know, uh, I think my question is about like two ways of communication that feedback is coming to the worker from leadership. And I think what I'm also hearing is discussion about uh, where do workers go when they want to vent? And there's repeated, I think a repeated theme about hostile work environment. Coworkers have a bad attitude. Um, dealing with difficult colleagues is consistently a part of my job, um, communication breakdowns. Um, and I know some of these are like backwards, which just kind of makes it a little harder to really get at the, the data and what it really means. But yeah, it, it seems like some of this is like team building and, and, and the strength that's missing, um, which is hard when you have a lot of temporary workers coming and going. I, I don't know that any of this is really a surprise, but yeah, I think if we want to support our workforce, then it requires a lot of uh, listening and responding to the workers. Yeah, and last year, um, trustee esteem was the first year that we actually did, uh, well, actually last year was the second year that we did frontline debriefings in a psychologically safe environment. So we have we had training for debriefing facilitation training and um, had required our managers to attend that. And the expectation is that a neutral facilitator do the debriefing without any management present so that it's a safe space and so that we can further learn what are some of the challenges um, because date, you know, data is not going to tell us any everything. We need quantitative uh, data to to put the puzzle together. Um, what is the trigger that leads to a debrief? Every single uh, work setting that generated a report, so you have to have a minimum of five responses. Every single work setting will have a debrief. And uh, from that debrief, the neutral facilitator will then share those, share the feedback with the manager. The manager is then tasked to work with the frontline staff to create a um, agreed upon and collective action plan to address uh, if our goal is teamwork and safety climate, 
to address the teamwork in that work setting. And all of this is recorded in an online tool so that their senior leader can have access to that and see what kind of action plans, what the progress is. So again, last year was the first year we held everybody accountable. I think going forward, it is gonna just build on that because we have access to the action plans from the prior year. So we can then revisit those and say, so this is what you proposed, what has been done, what do you need to do to, um, to ensure that you implemented it and, and you continue the work towards building that teamwork. Is there a schedule for that? And, and if there is a schedule for, you know, for the checking in on the implementation and, and the timing of that, how does that work with uh, the supervisor or the manager level person as re in regards to accountability? Well, I'm like a, a dog with a bone. <laughs> I communicate um, a lot and hold people accountable. And our senior leadership is very, very, very supportive of this work. And they are constantly um, messaging it and, uh, and really, really supporting, supporting this work because they know how important it is. Mr. Jackson, Mr. Fratsky have been my number one cheerleaders, I will be honest, and Dr. Tornaveni have been so supportive. So we, last year, we um, debriefed 136 work settings. We have action plans for all of those work settings. It's recorded online. And this year we have 199 work settings. So again, um, we are going to hold, hold management accountable have them work with their frontline staff because that's the only way we're going to be able to address the concerns that are happening at the front line. So again, um, I'm, I, my tenacity and, and the support from our leaders, uh, we will, we will uh, achieve that again. That sounds great. I know one of the things that came up as we've been talking about the, the number of vacancies and management positions and, and how to fill them and even some of the vacancies that occurred um, going through the transition period uh, with the executive leadership is that people in management positions had zero um, documentation in their personnel record. Like there was no record of discipline, no record of improvement plans. And it sounds like some of what you're discussing right now um, are tangible things that could lead to better outcomes, better safety, better teamwork, better collaboration, a spirit of real, you know, the culture of learning, and all of the things that, that we're hoping will drive AHS, uh, you know, currently through caring, healing, teaching, serving all. Um, because when people are saying that they don't feel safe coming into the place where they work, they wouldn't want to be a patient in the place where they provide care. You know, we have to really all work together in order to make sure people do feel safe because we are providing care every single day. And, uh, you know, if I was a nurse and I didn't feel like I could serve my grandmother in the same unit that I work. Um, I'd want to fix that. Thank you. I agree with everything you said, um, Trustee Esteen. Thank you, Trustee Esteen. Those were. Oh, I think Mr. Jackson has his hand up. Go ahead, um, Mr. Jackson. Thank you. Thank you very much. And just, I wanted to remark on what Trustee Esteen just noted. <clears throat> the most troubling of all of these scores to me was 
that score about um, their feelings, staff feeling safe getting care at AHS. Um, you know, there are a lot of areas for us to work on, but that one to me is the most distressing. And I really do um, intend to focus on that. We, we need to earn the confidence of our staff that they and their loved ones can feel safe receiving care at our facility. And so just, I appreciate you calling that out trustee and know that that's gonna be one of my primary um, points of emphasis. Thank you, James. And I know that in a survey, maybe six years ago or seven years ago, there was a higher percentage of folks who said that. They said, how confident do you feel about the quality of care you provide? And people said, I'm, I, you know, they had a high level of um, positivity about the quality of care they themselves provided. But when it said, would you bring your family here? There was less of that. And so I think that that where folks have to feel pride in the quality of care they provide or to be able to uh, you know, create the culture of high reliability over here so that you feel that we are all in this together and we have to do this uh, to, to make our care, our patient experience and our care because I think people believe that there's uh, the experience could be improved. That sometimes the clinical quality is good, that the experience is navigating the system can harvest. So you'll know the granularity of it. I, last question, and I know we've used up more time than we had, but this was so important for us to hear, Darshan. Thank you so much. Um, is there, do the neutral facilitators, so folks choose to go to some other unit and do this, do they get some training before they are able to kind of hold that space that allows this, um, the, uh, without defensiveness, without, you know, and, and, and to surface a lot of things. And there are many over there who might not have um, sort of completed the survey themselves, but then this is probably their chance to also give input as the, as the, as the collective learning and sharing is happening. Right. Um, yes, uh, our partners from Beta Healthcare had conducted two live training sessions for all of our um, managers. Um, there is a recorded, uh, a recorded um, session that was sent out to all of the leaders today. And the, the units that have low performing scores um, it is decided that the patient safety team actually conduct the debriefings in those areas because we do not want to put a novice facilitator in a situation that might be um, highly sensitive or difficult to navigate. Thank you. That, that's really helpful. All right. So any other questions? All right, thank you so much. Um, thank you. Darshan. Um, um, Anna, I had, uh, uh, Ms. Doris, I have one question. It was just a comment. I know that we do the, when we do the dashboard, we look at our own benchmarks and our year-to-date um, metrics. And at the next QPSC meeting, I'd like to know uh, sometimes, would it be possible for the board to know like how we do relative to our neighboring hospitals in terms of some of these as well, so that we are comparing ourselves to ourselves, but 
how have we compare ourselves to other hospitals in the area who um, and similar or um, um, to see how we do on those if that's possible. Yes, there will be part in at the main meeting, we will be talking about the new true north metric report. Mm -hmm. And I think benchmark uh, is going to be part of that discussion. Wonderful. Thank you. And lastly, I know that we've spoken about this at other QPSC that we'll be looking at the true north metrics and others that are coming. And I always see when where we do the steep, we get to do the safety and timeliness and effectiveness and uh, but the equity, again, or the patient-centeredness, I lo would love to see like what your thoughts are around that as, as we come into it. Like, how are we then at the board level, dashboard level, seeing some of those would, would be happy to hear your thinking process on that as well. Yes, that will also be included. So the team that's working on the True North metrics, um, actually, we saw a draft today uh, of where they're, they're moving towards um, with the dashboard. So yes, equity is being built into the dashboard. So we'll have that for you next month. Wonderful. Thank you so much. We know you would. Sure. <laughs> uh, you are an amazing team, small and mighty. Thanks again. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, all right, I'm moving on. So we are, our, our chair has had some issues with um, transit and his also with his audio. So he might not be able to join us. So it looks like we will, uh, council, is it okay? Uh, we will move to item F, which is Lily Moray. Uh, would you please introduce yourself and then look forward to hearing your uh, presentation. You have about 15 minutes, but would you be able to do it in 15? Yes. Wonderful, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, everyone. Let me just share my screen. My name is Lily McCray. Um, okay. So, uh, pardon me, I just wanna share my screen with you all. So uh, my name is Lily, I'm a nurse by training and I am the manager for outpatient care coordination um, here at Alameda Health System. Can you all see my screen? Okay, great. So I'll be, uh, so I've been here for about eight, uh, eight or nine years um, in different roles, but um, as I said, I manage a couple of programs here at Alameda Health System, including complex care, care transitions. Um, and today I'll be talking about our work, uh, focusing on patients who are cycling through our acute care settings. Lily, excuse me, I'm sorry to interrupt, it's James. We're seeing um, presenter mode. Um, if you go to display settings, you can change it to presentation mode. Uh, there, display settings. Duplicate, swap. Yes. Thank you so much for that. Okay. It didn't change, right. it, it didn't change unfortunately. Okay, let me... I think I have to stop sharing and then share again. How's that? Yes. Thanks for that. Every day I learn something new. 
So, um, so today, today I want to talk a little bit about our work focusing on patients who have a freak, a pattern of frequent utilization. Um, and I really want to ground um, my talk today in um, this quote here. Um, this is one of the patients that we've uh, worked with who has had a, this same pattern, um, who is also featured on our intranet. So this is Mr. Gamble. And when the team asked him for what bring, brings him encouragement and confidence, um, this is what he told us. He said, never give up until the job is done. That's the real conquest. And he sent us this photograph of himself uh, from 30 years ago, serving in the army. So, okay. So Mr. Gamble is one patient in this population of um, patients who frequent our emergency and hospitals um, here at AHS. And so that's really our problem statement that I'm gonna talk about and the work and interventions we've applied to this. When we looked at a period of six months, uh, we identified that 441 patients were admitted three or more times um, to one of our three acute care sites. Um, while this is a lot of people and a lot of utilization, this is not an unusual problem. We know that this is beyond AHS, that we see this nationally and internationally, that some patients are just cycling through um, and not really getting their long-term needs met. So this has an impact um, in really three ways that I wanna talk about. Uh, the first, the first level of impact and the most important in my view is our, on our patients. Um, as our patients come into the hospital um, and have increased utilization, um, they are getting sicker and sicker. And there's really no matter um, how many touches to the medical system in this way, um, there's not, they're not experiencing long-term benefit. So their, their needs are going unmet. Um, the second, level of impact that I want to talk about, and we actually heard a lot about this through our score survey earlier, is the system strain. Um, we're burnt out as, as system providers, there's desensitization and throughput challenges, which cause a ripple effect that impact other patients as well. And then the third impact is financial. Um, and I know everyone here is, is uh, very well versed in some of the financial impacts through uh, loss of funding, cost of uh, length of stay and frequent visits. So in the beginning of 2021, we established an interdisciplinary work group to create and implement a system-wide strategy to interrupt this cycle. In, 20, in the middle of the year, in June, we established a dedicated team for direct service uh, to this population of patients. So through this work group, we uh, went through a root cause analysis to really understand what's causing this, this pattern here at HS. So we did chart reviews, we did patient and provider interviews. Um, we wanted to understand what, what this population, what, what were the barriers within this population. We wanted to understand better what's happening to these patients outside our four walls. We wanted to know how patients viewed this, this utilization for themselves. 
And how well prepared uh, do our frontline staff feel in meeting the needs of this complex group? So um, this is a fish fishbone that really talks a little bit about um, some, of what we, some of what we learned during this root cause analysis. Um, there were two main categories. One is in the category of unmet needs. So as I mentioned earlier, um, the hospital is perfectly designed to have a high degree of reliability to care for people in those immediate moments to, to solve those immediate needs, but not necessarily to meet those needs over time. So um, the other category that we identified was this lack of planning or good planning happening in isolation. We didn't have a mechanism to look over the overall trajectory of a patient across the continuum. So we were missing that bird's eye view to really understand what is happening, not just in those visits, but in between those visits. And then we identified four main populations of patients, people experiencing homelessness, people with a serious mental illness, people with complex medical conditions that are getting worse over time, and then substance and alcohol use disorder. So through this work group, we really focused in three main ways uh, in terms of our intervention. The first, the first intervention responding to this idea of lack of care planning or care planning happening in isolation. We found that there was really good work happening just in different domains and it was not communicated well across our, our system. So we created a, a standard work around um, routine interdisciplinary meetings to really talk about that longitudinal plan, to create a system to connect the dots that not just within the hospitalization, but between those visits. Um, so these case conferences, we were leveraging uh, our internal stakeholders and also focusing on our external um, partners in the community, at the county, to really leverage the resources available to our patients. And I'm excited to say that even some of the providers in tonight's meeting have been involved in se several of our case conferences um, for patients um, in this population. The other thing about the case conferences is it increased the uh, accountability and leveraged these resources for our patients um, to, to really encourage, um, uh, like I said, accountability from those who um, were really needing to provide those, care, those services. The second intervention, uh, the care plan. So these case conferences, we create this, this care plan we identified that there wasn't a place um, in EPIC that was centralized, that was available and actionable to everyone across our continuum. So we created an, a, a space in EPIC um, to, to have this living, breathing care plan um, be accessible um, and updated by our team. And then the third, third area really is, is a huge piece of work. Um, which we've just scratched the surface of, but it's, it's really this, this category of unmet needs. Uh, we created a, a pilot team, a dedicated team to provide this high touch uh, care navigation to patients to ensure that we're assessing and linking people to the, to the social needs that they um, have.
So this team that I spoke of, um, similar to our other teams, but um, different in that we really had no exclusion criteria in this team. Um, payer agnostic, medical home agnostic, really only focusing on people who were coming through our, our hospital. Um, some other aspects of this team, um, person-centered, so really ensuring that our patients have a voice um, in the solutions and are really always at the center of those care plans. The team uh, always with a focus on deepening our partnerships with the county and community organizations, because we all know we can never do this work on our own. So creating these collaborative networks to provide this support. Um, always having an equity lens. So really understanding that we're addressing the symptoms of poverty and racism. And then high touch. So really a specialized um, care, always meeting patients where they are. So that could be in the emergency department, that could be in the encampments, that could be in patients' homes. So here you see our team made up of a social worker. We have a community health outreach worker and nurse. So I just wanted to take an opportunity to share a patient's story to really drive home um, really the nature of the work and an example of what can happen. So we have Mr. W who, um, when we met, 37-year-old male, uh, end-stage renal disease, dialysis dependent, at that time had no outpatient uh, dialysis unit. Uh, he had opioid use disorder, a tra traumatic brain injury, seizure disorder, chronic pain, and a developmental disability. So uh, when we first met Mr. W, um, he was in the hospital for 112 days. He'd had a, a history of utilizing the hospital to get the dialysis that he needed to stay alive. Um, during the stays, uh, there was frequent documentation of refusing medications, um, treatments, lots of notes such as agitation, lack of cooperation. He was homeless at the time and his sole support was his dad. Through a series of um, interventions with our team and assessments, we learned more about Mr. W. We learned that he had a functioning of an eight to nine year old. And he told us he had a really severe fear of needles. He had had prior linkage to a methadone treatment um, clinic. And that was that went well for him. He was unable to discharge from the hospital because there was no accepting dialysis unit at the time. His goals were to reconnect with his daughter and his aging dad was his only source of support and he was very worried about his son's health and safety. So through a series of interventions, assessments, really trying to understand Mr. W's goals for himself and his motivations, we were able to use the case conferences I described, um, a care plan in Epic to slowly build his store of stable resources. So we were able to connect him with permanent supportive housing. That was the first really meaningful inter intervention. At that permanent supportive housing, we were able to work with a regional center to create caregiver support. There was nurses on site. Um, so really creating that network of support that he was finding in the hospital at his home. 
creating a more stable home environment created an envi um, the ability to find an accepting nephrologist. Uh, and that enabled him to get he home hemodialysis with the help of the nurses at his permanent housing site. So you can see here, we met Mr. W in November. He was in the hospital for 112 days. Um, he moved into his home, uh, permanent supportive housing in April. In July, he began his home hemodialysis. So now he's thinking about things like taking his daughter to a water park this summer. That's his current goal. So I, I, there's some data I wanna share. I know I'm running out of time, but I did wanna talk about the 21 patients that we worked with during the six months that we piloted this team in 2021. So you can see here, we have a mix of payer, but mostly Medi-Cal. Most of our patients were extreme, uh, experiencing homelessness. Um, the, the racial breakdown of our group, uh, disproportionately black patients. And then really a, a complicated, the takeaways that I wanna share with you is that, that patients in this group have a, a complicated social barriers that are impacting their lives and our system. So you can see here, cognitive impairment, serious mental illness, and alcohol or substance use. And not just those three barriers on their own, but how they intersect with each other. So um, some preliminary data that I'm really excited to share is that the work of this team um, has impacted these patients' lives in terms of the, their stability and the resources in their lives, but also their utilization patterns. So um, you can see here on the left, uh, there's the annual median, median visits were decreased by 50% um, for these 21 patients and length of stay decreased by 23 days. So we know that this impacts our system um, financially, but what this means for these 21 patients is that on average 27 days for each of these patients um, each year are returned to them. They're home with their family, they're home with their friends, they're in treatment for their um, underlying conditions. Um, and overall, as a whole group, that's 567 days if we project these, this data over a period of a year. So I just wanted to share some next steps for our work for this team um, and perhaps our system. Um, we wanna move beyond this pilot and really use the lessons learned from this team to think about more broadly how we can serve our vulnerable patients. Um, how can we think about our system as a seamless continuum and passing this baton um, between care, caregivers so patients don't experience um, you know, many different um, disparate domains. Um, more dedicated resources for analytics. We really want to understand deeper of the impact that we're having on patients and the, and the impact we're having on our system. And then thirdly, and I just love the connection to the, to the survey discussion that we had prior, is really strengthening and supporting our workforce. Um, the community health worker role is is prime to the work that we do in our care management teams. Um, and then also just overall ensuring that we have real, real competence in social medicine and um, treating our patients both in, in immediate ways, but also 
long-term way so we can impact their health-related social needs. Thank you, Ms. Oh, McRae. Yeah. That was that just shows that when you have um, dedicated, you know, resources. Oh, there's more. Go ahead. That was. Thank you, Ms. McRae. That was that that is terrific, and we know that you know with a team, a plan dedicated resources, data, all of that, that it's possible to create. I mean, it's life-changing for, for um, our patients, high utilizers to be treated, um, social medicine and to be treated with dignity um, and to be seen in the full complexity of the ways in which the interlocking ways they face barriers in the system. As you said, these different, um, compound on each other and create new kinds of oppression. So thank you for the work you did this. Uh, we should bring this to the full board sometime. And I wanted to welcome our chair, uh, Dr. Bukhet is here uh, to note. Uh, questions? I would love to get a report after this. This is fantastic. Thank you for sharing. High utilizers are always difficult on our system, um, because as you pointed out with the, the overlapping Venn diagram, the multiple coexisting conditions are really difficult to, to deal with, especially in an environment like a hospital, which is not housing, um, and which doesn't have you know regional center services and all sorts of things. But I would love to know how much money was saved because of this pilot program. You know, if we imagine that people were utilizing at a certain level and we just consider that whatever, through death or through moving out of state or what have you, um, and that kind of impact, because I, I love that you're looking for um, health workers that can go into the community. Absolutely, we need more of them. But I'm curious about how many more social workers we need and how the savings truly offsets the cost of staff. And, you know, it makes me think about all the other resources then that are more appropriate for clients like housing and whether or not we're actually saving so much money in the health system that the county could then incent be incentivized to invest in this and housing instead of investing in, you know, whatever crisis services we typically invest in. Yes, thank you for that comment and question. Um, that's, these are questions that I have as well. And I think, um, you know, one thing that your, your question makes me think of is that we're, we want to support this navigation to um, services. We also want to support those actual tangible services, housing. We could not have done this work with Mr. W without Oak Days, which is our partner through the, the county who's created this incredible supportive housing environment there. He was able to get these services. So um, at the top of my presentation, I didn't, I also, I had I forgot to mention that uh, Dr. Swift is here. She's our medical director um, and also able to answer questions. Dr. Bouquet, trustee Bouquet. Hey Lily, how are you? We always see each other in the hall, so it's good to see you um, again. So uh, apologies for running late. Um, uh, I, I wanna follow up on 
trustees Steen's question in in kind of a multiple factor way. What is the FTE for the complex for this team, Lily? I apologize if I missed that part of the presentation. So for the team that I just talked about, this pilot yeah. team focused on frequent utilizers, um, the team that did this work with 21 patients yeah. is 1.75. F 1.75 FTE. Yeah, so I have a, a full-time um, community health worker, a half-time nurse, and I, I borrowed some of my social worker from complex care to do some yeah. of this work. So I really pulled existing resources from other teams to do this work for six months. I mean, they're still doing the work this year, but that's what you saw. 1.75 FTE. And, and you I, what I think I heard was the product was 567 days saved, hospitalized days saved. That's that? projected savings. Yes. Thank you, so, Dr. Koha, for crunching those numbers for me. Yes. So yeah, I just want to also say that really, really good supervision. So, you know, I supported the team. And then we also have Isha Jethi, who's our supervisor, who's a social worker by training. So I think that supervision and support. So that also is in addition to the 1.75. Got it. So 567 days. And we, we use a rough earmark of around 3,000 bucks and, and uh, our COOs in the room, maybe our CFOs in the room, maybe they can correct me, but I know that we previously used a rough earmark of around 3,000 bucks per bed per day. So at 567 patients, that's about $1.7 million um, as, as a rough back of the napkin kind of work. So trustee Esteen, I think, I think that, uh, you know, uh, using trustee math, which isn't always great math, uh, um, it looks like the, the ROI on this one is a is sort of a no brainer. Yeah, and it's so patient centered, and to be able to do this in a way that is actually looking at like who is having the greatest barriers over here. So, yeah. Lily, what would you what 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 do you need to make this a durable? intervention? I think a few things. I mean, obviously, goes without saying funding for secure permanent teams, but I also think an environment that holds us accountable for uh, maintaining comprehensive support for vulnerable patients. Um, so we need, a, uh, we need the ground to be prepared for the work yeah. that we're doing as we move patients from that high risk group into lower, um, lower risk groups. And then just holding health equity as, as the center of our work. Um, so, so it's an imperative for everything that we do. Um, that's the other, the other piece that we need. So, so I think we consider this a pilot at this point, right? Correct. So, so if, you could, if you could envision your version 2.0 of this, what would your wish list be? Like, like hard FTE. You need three FTE. You need four FTE. You need... What, what would be your sort of wish list? Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated answer, but in simple terms, I would need more FTEs, but this is really a specialized unit within a, a larger family of, tree, of, of um, teams for complex care um, focused on this unique group. So, um, so I think, yes, more FTEs and, um, and, and more support to, for that supervision um, and then, and working with the teams to help with those collaborative efforts with the and other internal stakeholders and the county and the and the um, community. 
I, I, I think that that was an obvious answer. And then I asked you to work with Dr. Dr. Swift to, to sort of business model this. What is the exact number FTE and position and cost? And if we could match that up against the $1.7 million, man, even if this was a break even, it's a win for the organization, especially when we're all hearing code red surge all the time. You know, uh, 567 days is a lot of days. Thank you for your presentation. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Lily. That was, uh, that was terrific. And again, like you said, uh, there were bright spots that were within the system. And I think that building that building that ability to do this on a regular basis, our own accountabilities to our patients and our communities so that this is happening not only for high, high, high utilizers, but we are building this ability to do this kind of linkages, to do this kind of meeting where we are for others who are moderate and who are at other levels of needing that. So kind of internalize it, but yes, moving from pilot to, um, to doing this system-wide in a, on a broad scale. So this is our time. This is as we think about our strategic plan, where is uh, some of these things. I'm sure there are places to be having um, them put into, and uh, we hope that all of this is going to be informing the implementation and the prioritization and the planning. So well, um, Chair, thank you again, Lily. Uh, Chair, I blew to our timelines. Of course, we are like way beyond our time. But we have one item that was a consent agenda since we didn't have a quorum. And what Trust, I wanted to know was that Trustee Banerjee, anything uh, that needs to be taken out for this. Uh, trustee, I mean, uh, uh, Dr. Swift had her hand up. I think she was going to give a contribution. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't see that. Go ahead, Dr. Swift. Hi, can you hear me? Yep. I am so sorry. My camera is not working and I certainly don't mean to delay all of us. I just wanted to provide a few comments. Lily and her team, they are just so incredible and so incredibly humble. I wanted to point out their extreme, you know, visionary actions. They developed this in the setting of the midst of our pandemic. They had the foresight to try to organize resources and prioritize the patients. Um, you know, as Lily mentioned, um, this is not a problem only at AHS. It is well documented in the medical literature. Um, the first papers started coming out sometime around 1984. The thing that you see when you see these patients is that they are caught in the safety net. They are caught in a cycle where they are forced to use a venue over and over again that, that actually does not create long longevity. They themselves, by having to come to, quote, the wrong place, then become the focus of everyone's frustration. Um, and we use terms like frequent flyers. You know, that is a term that is met with privilege and esteem in the airline industry and the exact opposite in healthcare. Um, the team, patients demonstrate so much courage coming in every time repeatedly. And the team did too, because it was not easy to to pull off these extraordinary, extraordinary home dialysis, just unheard of. Um, just in the setting of so much skepticism, so much burnout in the middle of a pandemic. And I just wanted to applaud their efforts. I also wanted to say, this is what we mean when we talk about serving all. We mean that we are here to serve those who have been 
excluded and who have do no other recourse and we're proud of it. And as we think about this, we should think about that thread that we're weaving, you know, Dr. Francis brought up the same, the same population, the same continuum of care. And this is what we mean when we talk about equity, the difference between equality and equity. Some patients need additional resources and it's teams like this and healthcare for the homeless and other teams here at AHS um, that are dedicated to this kind of care. So I just wanted to, again, say how much we so deeply appreciate Lily, your leadership, the team's courage and uh, fortitude. Thank you so much for this opportunity to present this work. I will also say, the last thing is, frequently at AHS, we have pilots, we demonstrate progress, and then the pilots go away. In 2004, AHS received $1 million to look at frequent utilizers. Um, of our Highland Emergency Department. It was an extraordinary project that was funded by the California Endowment and CHCF, and they showed similar results. And so I'm really delighted to see this work, and I think we're poised to hardwire it this time. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Swift, and thank you again, Lily. It, that is Equity is giving people, providing the care that folks need. And um, we have to be worthy of our communities. We have an accountability to our communities. And you, you and your team have just shown what is possible when you put uh, you know, inspired action and purpose behind that. And I cannot say enough how many pilots we have, whole person care, and which end up as pilots only, even when we know how much they, um, they help. So we need to move from pilots to having these being internalized. Thank you all for your support. Thank you. On that note, um, last item on our agenda is the consent agenda, which includes the policies and the minutes for the two meetings. And before I call for a vote. I wanted to know, is there any discussion on any of these items? Yes, Madam Chair, would you mind? I'd like to pull the procedural sedation policy for discussion. Uh, otherwise, I, uh, barring anything else, I make a motion to approve the entire consent agenda, agenda save the procedural sedation policy. I'll second that. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll do a roll call. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Excellent. I was having problems earlier with it. Uh, Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Esteen. Aye. The motion passes. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful. So let's have uh, your question there. Yes, Ma Madam Chair. Included in the packet was this uh, updated procedural sedation policy. And I don't know why it was highlighted in yellow, but it worked and it caught my eye. Um, and it said a minimum of two clinicians shall be present during any moderate sedation procedure. Uh, I'd like clarity on what they mean by two clinicians, because if that means two physicians in the room, at least from my selfish motivation, we just basically shut down operations in one of our endoscopy rooms going forward if we approve this policy. So I'll, I'll, I'll defer this one to our CMO, uh, who probably has done some great background research on this. Dr. Tornabene. Thanks, Dr. Bouquet. Yeah, no, indeed, I 
I was able today to speak with um, Ms. Cooper in order to get a little bit of background about the discussion at CPC. And indeed, from what I understand, um, this policy um, came back multiple times to CPC because of a discussion around this item. Now, this particular item, um, that highlighted area actually arose out of um, a a discussion around making sure that we would always have in the room with a patient undergoing procedural sedation, a provider and an RN. So okay. that, um, um, and from what I understand, um, some of the passion around this and clarifying this also came from Dr. Boulard, who's our physician co-chair of CPC, out of making sure that um, there was a, uh, a bill in the state of California a few years ago that finally went into effect that came out of the, the dental literature and making sure that a patient would never be put under procedural sedation with just one person in the room. And so this was the intent behind this statement of always having a minimum of two clinicians. However, um, like I said, the intention is a provider and an RN. If there is a procedure that's, for example, happening in the ICU and there is a provider and an RN, that RN would never leave the room in order to get a piece of equipment or whatnot needed by the provider. We would bring in a runner or some other person. So there's always a minimum of two people with that patient under procedural sedation at all times under the intent of this policy. So that's the background that I got this uh, today. Yes, ma'am. Uh, so I, I, I wholeheartedly agree uh, when pe people are sedated that too. I think where the, where, the, where the policy could have some clarity is around the word clinicians and maybe in parentheses specifying what that that might include the following is sort of a list of options because I think that could potentially be interpreted as two physicians in the room, um, which which would uh, kind of hamper operations. I think for a number of units who do sedation. I think that that's an easy clarification to add parenthetically to that statement. Um, uh, you know, and um, you know, pending the vote from the board to approve this. So I just have yeah. a question. Uh, before we continue about gender and whether or not that matters. Um, in instances sometimes where there is this kind of concern, do we, do we need to consider that or would that be too limiting? Can you say a little bit more about that? About we, do we need to um, specify uh, in, in some way? You said, I might've misheard you did. Trustee Asteen, did you say gender? I did say gender. Yeah, sometimes, uh, you know, if we have a, a patient or a client who is worried about uh, risk, then we say sometimes we need to have like mixed gendered doubling up so as to protect everyone. Yeah, no, interesting. I, 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 I'm interested in hearing from some of our CPC members who might have heard the discussion if that came up. Um, and and I, I had not heard that come up prior um, about whether or not we have uh, a standard around um, um, having gender concordance or having representation, or perhaps it's even just making sure that we're respecting the preferences of the patient 
Mm-hmm. And perhaps it's that really that that we um, entertain the preference of the patient um, when uh, a patient is going under procedural sedation. Yeah, I mean, then there becomes a, a chain of communication which yeah. can be documented, which is also quite helpful. I mean, you know, it makes me reflect back on the incident we talked about at our last meeting where there was an assault because the patient wanted a male mm-hmm. person at the bedside, but there was a female person, and then, you know all the other things took place. Um, Trustee Esteen, I think operate, I, 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 I completely agree with the concept. Uh, my concern would be uh, sort of, if you will, quote, mandating it in a policy and procedure because operationally let's, I, I actually have, I have a couple of case examples where patients have come in and said, I only want a woman to do my uh, endoscopy today. And if I'm the only one scheduled for today, then the choice is you're not getting it. <laughs> or, because I think I think our bench just isn't deep, deep enough always. Of course, the pre- patient preference is important. So in those particular cases, you know, I have in my, in my speaking as a division chief, I have um, a, 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 the majority of our, our docs are female docs. So I'll say, hey, you need to come over from this site to help out this patient. And then I'll go cover your old site but sometimes we don't have that operational flexibility. So that would be one potential concern about mandating it in a policy and procedure. Um, Trustee Bouquet, I'm wondering, Trustee Esteen, I'm wondering in lieu of not placing it in a policy and procedure, if it could, it could be considered part of our um, just standard work to ask the question mm. to the patient um, prior to any procedure, you know, our, you know, Dr. Bouquet and Mark Fratsky will be here with you under your procedure. Um, are you okay with that? Yeah. You know, it's something just within our standard work. Mr. Fratsky, I love that. I, yeah, making yeah. it standard work. I think that's great. I, I love the, the suggestion as well to make sure and really framing it in standard work to make sure we're taking our patient preferences into account in the midst of the vulnerability of being under procedural sedation. Mm. Right. All about addressing the patient need, right? Patient sensitive. Excellent suggestion. And I do agree that going into not uh, the policy be broad, but that be like a work um, standard did you have a question more a follow-up question about this one no ma'am so with that i i would make a motion that with with our discussion about clarifying what 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 clinician would encompass i would make a motion to otherwise approve this policy and procedure all right so moved and a, a second I'll second that. All right. All right. Trustee um, Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Here. Trustee Esteen. Aye. The motion passes. Thank you. Is it my connection, but I just lost Rana, but uh, we got everybody's. Yes, ma'am. Got everybody. Um, so uh, the uh, the one thing to notice that in the other policies the dates had been had not been there. So just to say that again, um, connected with Dr. Tonabene um, to make sure that the dates were okay and it's all passed through MEC. Mm-hmm. 
correct? That is correct. We did validate that today. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Tona Bennett. So with that, um, our consent agenda is through. We do not have a closed session today, our general counsel has said. So that brings us, we, uh, we decided a chair's prerogative, uh, Dr. Bukit, to uh, push the charter discussion to a time when we have all members of the QPSC network. Yes, ma'am. I think Trustee Banerjee froze out. Uh, uh, Trustee Esteen, is that acceptable to push it down the road? That is acceptable. And I think we have Trustee Banerjee back. Uh, Trustee Banerjee, you froze for a second. You're back. Oh, all oh, right. Did you hear my question? Yeah, yeah, yes. I I, 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 I concur with the direction uh, you, you've taken to, uh, to defer it until we have a full uh, vote of trustees. Wonderful. Well, with that, then we will adjourn our meeting. Thanks, everybody. And good night.